0: Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. Just a reminder, CoinDesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Ben Edgington, lead product owner of Teku at Consensus, and I'm joined by my co-host Christine Kim, research analyst at Coindesk.
2: Hi guys, glad to be back.
1: Today we're going to be discussing a number of topics, including Coinbase's direct listing on Nasdaq, uh, Ethereum's latest Berlin hard fork, and a big milestone for the ETH2 beacon chain. But first, how are you, Christine?
2: I'm doing okay. The weather has finally started to get a lot warmer here in Vancouver, Canada, where I'm based. So, I've been really enjoying the the nice weather this weekend. How about you Ben? How have you been?
1: Yeah, great. Spring has sprung. So, it sounds like uh, across uh, the other side of the world, enjoying spring as well. So, here in England, it's been beautiful the last few days and it's been great to get out. Yeah, hope it's nice wherever our listeners are as well.
2: Yeah, and starting with, you know, the good mood that I'm in very recently over the weekend. So as people know, Will has left Coindesk. And I thought that, you know, since we don't have this Ethereum reporter that's actively looking at what's going on with Ethereum developments, news developments, I was like, I really need to get back into the loop of things because I used to be an Ethereum reporter too, before I joined the research team. So I started to get back into like all core developer calls, I started to follow up on the Discord chat, all the newsletters of Ethereum. I started to look at it a little bit more, take more time reading those newsletters. And as I was doing that, I felt like I was getting back into the groove of staying up to date with what's going on in the Ethereum world. And I'm happy to say that I learned a new term, a new terminology, and it's called the cliffening. Apparently, this is like the new hot thing that a lot of developers and users are talking about now. Ben, I want to test your knowledge. Do you know what the cliffening refers to?
1: Mm, another week, another meme. <laughs> uh, I actually had to go and Google this one, uh, Christine. Sorry to confess. So you can judge how with it I am from that. But it's about the the massive reduction in Ether issuance uh, once we move off proof of work, right? It's going to fall off a cliff, The the inflation rate. Drops right down, might even become negative with uh, EIP-1559. This, I think, has led to the ultrasound money meme. Have you come across that one?
2: Yes, the ultrasound money one, classic, classic uh, (laughs) meme.
1: Have you put on Twitter yet the bat and the uh, megaphone, the ultrasound thing in your Twitter handle? This is a thing to do now, apparently.
2: What? No. Okay, I didn't I didn't know it has been taken this far. Like, I think the biggest meme where I've seen people change their Twitter profiles is the laser eyes for Bitcoin community of Bitcoin reaching some crazy wild price and people continuing to do the the red laser eyes. Uh, But I haven't seen Ethereum people adopt a Twitter profile changing meme. So that's news to me.
1: Yeah. Bat and a megaphone for ultrasound. (laughs)
2: Okay, this clearly means that I still have a lot of catching up to do, but hopefully each week, you know, I feel like, Ben, you have so much knowledge and expertise on all things Ethereum tech development that I like being able to one up you at times by, you know, dropping in these hip terminologies that I'm finding online and definitely going to be trying to be a lot more active searching of what's going on in the Ethereum community So anyways, coming back to kind of like what we wanted to talk about this week, I I definitely think that outside of me getting back into the groove of figuring out what's going on with Ethereum, one of the biggest events last week in the crypto industry was Coinbase going public. I mean, we've seen other cryptocurrency startups go public before, but none of them have been quite as well-known or highly valued as Coinbase. And when Coinbase shares went live, they placed Coinbase at an over $100 billion valuation. But of course, where there's all this hype, there's also a lot of haters out there. So the success and the media frenzy that was generated by Coinbase's huge watershed moment for crypto there were people who were pointing out some hypocrisy about everybody being excited about this really big company in Bitcoin going public because Coinbase is this trusted middleman. Like Bitcoin was created to be this peer-to-peer payments network where you don't need any financial middlemen. But here's Coinbase, you know, everyone getting so excited and so happy for Coinbase, even though it's doing the very thing that Bitcoin was created to kind of deal with and, and get rid of. Uh, Ben, what were your thoughts when you saw Coinbase going public and all the media frenzy that was generated from it?
1: I'm pretty happy with it, uh, really. I don't have a problem with it. I don't see Coinbase selling out. So the fact is that we need really good on ramps into crypto, into the decentralized future from where we are today, where we're all tied into the banks and Coinbase and the other exchanges are, are bridges from this world into the next world. I think Coinbase does a pretty good job of it. I trust them, I think, a lot more than I trust most of the banks. So yeah, I'm okay with it. Here's the thing. Did you know that if Coinbase were a bank, that valuation, that $100 billion, would place placed firmly among the top 20 banks by market cap in the world? So it'd be a quarter of the size of JP Morgan, a third of the size of Bank of America, half the size of Wells Fargo. I was quite stunned to realize it's right up there in the mix with, the traditional financial institutions. And honestly, if I were a traditional bank, I'd be getting a little bit nervous at this by now.
2: Wow, that's really interesting. I had no idea that in terms of the numbers, the $100 billion valuation places Coinbase in the top ranks of other major financial institutions in the world. So very cool that even on the market side, Ben, I mean... We started off this by me quizzing you on an Ethereum community term, but now you're testing me on my markets knowledge because I had no idea (laughs) about this.
1: (laughs) Uh, I like this. I I had to do my homework for that one.
2: (laughs) Really challenging each other here. No, that's good. To your point about greater mainstream adoption and these on-ramps like Coinbase that will help people familiarize themselves with crypto, get to know these crypto assets, what they're about, what they're used for, tying it back to kind of what Ethereum is all about. Similar to what Coinbase does for Bitcoin in that not everyone knows how to custody their own coins, knows how to set up their own Bitcoin address and then, you know, create their node. Similar to what Coinbase does for Bitcoin, Ethereum, with all the decentralized applications that it has on its network, There are also companies and platforms that try and help people use decentralized applications for this first time without all the technical difficulties and jargon. Even if they know very little about what it's like to actually use a blockchain, their whole main purpose is to sacrifice a little bit of the decentralization, make the service more centralized. But act as an on-ramp for people to use these decentralized applications to kind of spread adoption of dApps more quickly. When I say that, when I talk about middlemen, Ben, are there specific companies or applications that kind of automatically spring to mind when it comes to decentralized application adoption for Ethereum technology? I mean, what are your thoughts on similarly making Ethereum technology more accessible to the masses by using centralized services and platforms?
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it in that it's, it's a spectrum, right? There are different trade offs. I think it's a mistake to be too focused on, on one part of the spectrum. So, yeah, at the one end, we've got fully decentralized stuff, you've got the core protocol, and we're aiming to make that as decentralized as possible. And that's for security, so trustlessness it's permissionlessness, it's censorship resistant. And the, these are the sort of non-negotiables of the protocol. But everybody wants to deal with it at that level. So the mantra is be your own bank. But not everyone wants to be their own bank. It comes with complications like managing your keys about there are no refunds if you get defrauded, nobody's going to insure you. It's not necessarily a great user experience for people. So people will want to make some trade-offs whereby they might cede some sovereignty to uh, institutions like the centralized exchanges of this world. For that, they get some benefits like you know, much easier access and you know cheaper transactions or whatever it might be. Now, I think what we need to do is gradually shift people onto the benefits of the decentralized, permissionless censorship-resistant protocol. But unless they really see those benefits and understand those benefits, you know, why would they adopt them? Because it comes at a cost in user convenience and in risk as well. So it's an interesting spectrum. And we've only just begun this journey, right? Only a few million people have interacted with the blockchain, any blockchain so far, and there are a few billion yet to reach. And I think we need to make it as easy as possible for them to do so. So I've got no problem with, as long as people understand the compromises they're making and the sacrifices they're making, I've got no problem with them coming on through something a little more centralized and then discovering this glorious world we have of, you know, the Uniswaps and the Sushi swaps and the DeFi and and all of this, if they're confident to do so, becoming self-sovereign in terms of their financial activity. It's, It's a spectrum. I'm happy with that.
2: I feel like a lot of people are in it for the long game, which is that we are still very early in the adoption curve. And ideally, where we end up is in a place that is more decentralized, more power to the individual user as opposed to large corporations. Speaking to the Ethereum equivalent of very big centralized players that are helping people learn more about Ethereum, similar to how Coinbase is exposing a lot of investors, traders to Bitcoin. One of the companies that I'm sure probably you know a lot about too, Ben, is Infura. So Infura is this uh, service, this platform. I'm not sure if it's still tied to Consensus. I think it is a product that was originally spun off of the venture capital studio Consensus. Uh, Infura is this company that allows people to run Ethereum nodes without actually running that technology on their computer, basically having their own setup. Definitely correct me if I'm wrong on this, Ben, but as I understand, for anybody to connect to the Ethereum network, run a transaction, run a decentralized application, basically do anything on the network, you need to connect to it. And one of the ways that you connect to it is through um, a, a computer or a node by running certain software, certain client software on your computer. And Infura is this huge network, this large network of Ethereum nodes that's for that purpose, for people to buy the service, use Infura to run an Ethereum node and connect to the network. Instead of in a middleman in the financial sense of somebody doing a transaction for you, on Ethereum, it's like, do you wanna run a decentralized application? Well, you need to connect to the network. Here's a little service that abstracts away from the layer of having to run your own Ethereum node. And there has been concern in the past with Infura nodes going down and it impacting a lot of Ethereum decentralized applications. Do we foresee a similar kind of service being created in the Ethereum 2.0 proof of stake model of Ethereum? And of what benefit? And I guess it's a similar benefit uh, to, to what we just talked about, but what kind of impact do we see an infura like service and platform being created on ethereum's proof of stake model which you know we're starting to move towards
1: yeah so the uh Infura guys are my colleagues so they're part of the uh consensus software inc which my team is also part of so i i know them really well and they are a great team just brilliant gold standard is people run their own nodes right and you know if i'm running a um a service on ethereum i should run my own node but that is not always convenient people want backup resiliency so on. So Infura provides a service, but they've come under criticism for being centralizing things. They don't do mining, so they have no control over the network. The miners control the network. So in that sense, they're not really centralizing the protocol, but they could be seen as, as gatekeepers. If everybody in the world used Infura, they could in principle censor transactions, though I've no idea why they would. So again, it comes back to the spectrum, right? You make your choices. You have the option to run your own node, or you can use Infura, or you can mine your own things. And it's up to you to choose your, your level of engagement with the protocol. Uh, so that said, I'm pretty sure Infura will want to be involved as service provider in ETH2, in the, in the beacon chain, providing services for stakers. So we could see, for example, um, providing data Endpoints, so you can uh, get analytics from the network and so forth. They're already doing that. So you can check a beacon node on Infura today and you can get analytics about the network. You can even attach your validator. So currently I'm running at home, I'm running a, a validator and a beacon node, and I'm using Infura to provide my Ethereum One service. I could just run a validator here and connect to Infura's beacon node service. Uh, and that, that works today uh, as, as an option.
2: Hmm. Infura is here to stay. I think it's interesting. I didn't know that Infura already has services to support data reception from the Beacon Chain, which is the main Ethereum 2.0 network at the moment. Speaking of Ethereum 2.0, Ben, what's our latest ETH 2.0 tech update?
1: Well, I'll keep it super non-technical this week. Just a milestone that we hit uh, this morning. So we're recording on Monday the 19th. And at 9.20 this morning, at GMT, uh, the beacon chain passed its one millionth slot. So <laughs> this is uh, quite a milestone. And what this means, so every 12 seconds, the Ethereum 2 beacon chain, the proof of stake chain that we're running, it uh, goes through a slot, 32 slots make an epoch. And this is part of the way the protocol kind of ticks along. And generally speaking, we have a block produced every slot. So there's a block every 12 seconds. Now, some slots are empty, so we haven't quite reached our millionth block yet, but I'm expecting that within the next day or or so. And really, you know, it doesn't mean a great deal. It's, you know, just a number, but it's a good point to just take stock of of where we are. It's been running for four and a half months now, and it's been totally trouble-free. Just been incredible. I just want to say at the millionth block of the Beacon Chain, it's been a brilliant success so far.
2: Yeah, I love celebrations. I love celebrating the wins. Speaking a little bit more to the millionth slot, reaching a million blocks. Are we processing blocks a lot faster on Ethereum 2.0 because it's a proof of stake network compared to the amount of time it takes to produce a block on the original Ethereum proof of work chain, because if like the data capacity, the amount of transactions that can be included in each block is the same from proof of work Ethereum to proof of stake Ethereum, but we're processing like just blocks so much more quickly on Ethereum 2.0, I think that gives a lot of people something to look forward to, not just in terms of the network. Once Ethereum transitions to proof of stake, not only will it become more energy efficient, but also it will relieve a lot of the pressures of too much activity on Ethereum and extremely high transaction fees. So when you say that Ethereum 2.0, the beacon chain reached its millionth slot today, does it also note that you know we've reached a million blocks in terms of processing data just so much more quickly than could have been possible on the Ethereum's original proof of work chain?
1: Well, the bad news is that it's not very different, actually. So the Ethereum uh, chain at the moment, I mean, it targets, I think, 14 seconds per block, though it's actually random. So it moves around around that 14 seconds. Uh, it's been quicker lately because as the price has gone up, hash rate has gone up and that has actually reduced block time. So it's probably around 12 or 13 seconds, which is very similar to the beacon chain. So the beacon chain is like clockwork. It's every 12 seconds there's a slot and there's usually a block in the slot. Um, ETH1, it fluctuates, but it's around 14 seconds. So the capacity isn't that much different for now until we introduce sharding. And then we multiply up the capacity. It's going to be a few hundredfold in terms of the the amount of capacity in blocks. So that's when it gets really exciting.
2: All right. Well, (laughs) interesting. I hadn't known that. This is good information. And like you said, I mean, sharding is still on the roadmap for after Ethereum transitions to its proof of stake protocol, it'll introduce then a lot of scalability gains. You know, I still want to talk about some of the wins here. One other win that I want to mention to our audience too, is that a couple of days ago on Friday, um, Canada approved three exchange traded funds for Ether ETFs. And if ETFs is something that you're not super familiar with. It basically is a way for institutional investors, for deep pocketed investors to be able to get exposure to the price of ether without actually holding the ether cryptocurrency itself. Again, talking about going on this thread of of financial middlemen, there's a financial company that creates these ETF funds. They get it approved by regulators to be able to trade on regulated exchanges and markets. And Canada, after approving its first Bitcoin ETF, just about two months ago, it approved three ETFs for Ether. I think this is a really big step for adoption. And I think it'll actually put pressure on the U.S. SEC to start approving you know, similar market products for the crypto industry, parallel products in the U.S. Because you know, Canadian investors are getting in on this action. How come U.S. investors can't? So that's another win, another positive for our talk on all the big milestones being reached in the first couple months of 2021. It's going to be an exciting year, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so. Are these, as far as you know, the the first crypto ETFs that that are available?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that there might be some approved in the UK, perhaps.
1: Oh, really? I should know this.
2: (laughs) I should know this too. But I know that this is the first time that Canada has, and geographically, Canada is very close to U.S. So I hope this will (laughs) make a lot of U.S. investors jealous and put more pressure on regulators to have a financial vehicle like that also available. Actually, it's funny because I didn't think we'd have time for this, but I'm so glad that we do. Last thing I wanted to bring up was the Berlin hard fork that happened last week. For people who don't know what that is, Ethereum underwent this backwards incompatible system wide upgrade, also called a hard fork. Last Thursday to implement what I would say were pretty non-controversial code changes and optimizations to the network, but it didn't go over so well. The Berlin hard fork, after its activation, there was a bug discovered in the way its code was implemented by this one group of software developers. The client name is Open Ethereum. It turns out that Open Ethereum was failing to reach consensus with all these other Ethereum clients, such as Geth, Parity. Is Parity still an Ethereum client? I think so.
1: Open Ethereum is what Parity used to be. So a oh um, change change from Parity to Open Ethereum. So it's a rebranding and it's no longer owned by Parity, but uh, is maintained more broadly.
2: Yeah. When did that happen? And why did that happen? Is it because when Polkadot launched, Parity was like, no, no, we're going to go all in on our Polkadot blockchain, which is also like a, a general purpose blockchain platform like Ethereum. But was that why the transition happened from we're no longer going to maintain a parity Ethereum client? Let's rebrand it as open Ethereum and just give it over to some other folks to maintain?
1: Yeah, exactly that, I think. Yeah. So Parity kind of stepped away from Ethereum. They've put everything into, into Polkadot. And uh, this parity client had quite a wide user base, very respectable client. I used to run it myself three, four years ago. It's a great uh, client. So it was given back to the community to maintain. I think Gnosis, our funding some of the support and maintenance uh, for it now. And we come to kind of issues of client diversity now and the origin of this sort of issue around the consensus failure after the hard fork last week.
2: I guess it's so good that you talked a little bit about the history of how Open Ethereum came to be, because I think that was one of the reasons. I mean, they're such a new team. This was probably one of their first hard forks that they did. The team itself, they might not be as experienced as other Ethereum client teams that have been Doing hard forks for a while, but basically because of the bug that was found in the Open Ethereum software, and because a lot of Ethereum applications and services still do rely on Parity, now rebranded Open Ethereum, a client, they found delays in their services. So EtherScan, which is a blockchain explorer where you can search up transactions, their services were paused because of this bug. CoinMetrics, another uh, data blockchain data provider. Their services were delayed. Bitco, a custodian, crypto custodian, their services were delayed because of this. Many people were impacted. And this was Berlin hard fork. It wasn't even a big upgrade. So post-mortem here, we're looking ahead to some bigger upgrades. We've got EIP-1559 coming, which is an update to Ethereum's fee market. We've got the merge Ethereum transitioning to its proof of stake protocol. There's some hard forks that are coming up that I think... There's just a lot more riding on them. So issues like this make me concerned. Ben, what are your thoughts on that? Like, does this make you concerned? What needs to change?
1: I don't think we should overplay the issues. So very few miners were running open Ethereum. It didn't really affect block production. So the the chain kept on chugging, uh, producing blocks uh, every 14 seconds or so, as it does. So it would have been different if a if significant proportion of miners were running Open Ethereum, then we might have seen uh, actual chain forks, which you know might have led to more more complexity. Uh, but as it happens, the chain w- was sound and and just kept a single chain more or less kept on going forward. So the issues were mostly around access. To the chain, um, people running Open Ethereum didn't have up-to-date information or weren't able to submit transactions, uh, and so on and so forth. So, which is quite serious for something that we, you know, want to um, position as the sort of global base layer, of course. And it, it comes down to client diversity, and it's a sort of two-edged sword. Um, in some situations, having uh, a diversity of clients makes the chain more resilient. And in some cases, it makes it more fragile. And it's a kind of trade-off between the two. And generally, Ethereum's philosophy, in contrast to what what Bitcoin favors, is to have multiple clients. And if one becomes unavailable, then other clients can pick up the slack. And that has worked well in Ethereum 2 land in particular. So in the Ethereum 2 world, client diversity has demonstrable value. It, It adds resilience to the system. In Ethereum 1, it's more finely tuned, I think.
2: Yeah, ideally, but I think number one, yeah, the original Ethereum chain in which the Berlin hard fork was released on, it didn't stop because of this bug. It kept going and people were able to patch up the bug in less of a frenzy because it was a smaller Ethereum client. Not too many people were running it and that the majority of the network struggling to produce the next block. They were running just fine. And number two is this bug could have gone unnoticed for years, but it's great that it happened in a short amount of time after the upgrade was released because I'm sure that it would have created a bit more media frenzy had it been found maybe like just a day out from the merge upgrade or one of these bigger upgrades. Speaking to the client diversity though, as I understand, Ben, you had mentioned the Rayanism hackathon last week Mm -hmm. on our show. And as I did more research on it, I noticed that the plan moving forward is now not to deprecate Ethereum One software clients in favor of Ethereum Two software clients, but now Ethereum Two software clients, which is Teku, we've got Prism, we've got Lighthouse, et cetera. They will start to work in tandem as much as they are now with the Ethereum One clients, Geth, Open Ethereum, et cetera. There mm-hmm. is quite a lot of client diversity on the Ethereum Two side. But on the Ethereum one side, I would say it's, it's largely Geth dominated client diversity there is not as strong. Knowing that the solution now doesn't seem to be quite so elegant and simplistic in that users will just have to run one node, one software client to connect to Ethereum as a whole network with the merge happening. Presumably, Ethereum users will have to connect to two Ethereum clients. They'll have to connect to an Ethereum 2.01 and an Ethereum 1 client. What are your thoughts about how the dynamics will change in terms of usability, in terms of application deployment moving forward, services, platforms? Is this going to introduce a big amount of complexity and potential vulnerability, difficulty when it comes to releasing upgrades, because any upgrade that's done to an Ethereum one client will now impact Ethereum 2.0 clients and vice versa.
1: The goal is to make it as straightforward and transparent as possible so that users don't really notice too much as different. So if you're staking today, you're already running an ETH1 and an ETH2 client together. So you have the same problems today. In terms of upgrades and so forth, they're not as tightly coupled as they will be, but that's still the situation. And yeah, we're trying to make everything compatible with everything, so you can choose your ETH2 client. We're calling it the execution layer, which is formerly known as ETH1, and the consensus layer, formerly known as ETH2 or the Beacon Chain. So the the consensus layer and the execution layer. Will be cooperate and you can basically mix and match your execution layer client or, or your consensus layer client. Now, something that that we are in a happy position of having within consensus in in my team is we have both an ETH two and an ETH one client. So we have the Beisoo, Hyperledger Besu client, which is fully ETH one compatible, and we're doing work on that to you know bring in the changes needed to run uh, with the Beacon Chain. Uh, they're both you know, Java, both Apache 2 license and so forth. So we're looking at having effectively one deployment for both Teku and Besu together, and you'll be able to manage these and upgrade them together. And we hope we're aiming to improve the manageability of the whole thing by by bundling together Teku for the consensus layer and BASU for the execution layer. So that's a nice position to be in. Other uh, ETH2 teams don't have that advantage. So... We need to do some work on Vesu to make it a little bit more performant, but uh, that's in progress. I mean, part of the de-risking process is to try and do as little as possible to make it happen. We've taken out quite a lot of complexity, including the withdrawals. We're not doing the shards at the same time. We are um, leaving data structures, even if it's a bit messy. We're leaving data structures as is, not optimizing them yet, and a few other things just to try to make The minimal changes possible, both on the ETH1 and the ETH2 side. That's an approach to kind of A, delivering it quicker and B, de-risking the whole thing.
2: Right now, for everyone who's listening, there is a hackathon going on to flesh out and further create the protocol that will make the merge happen on Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0 to bring those two networks together to transition Ethereum onto proof of stake. Uh, that hackathon started last week and it's going to be ongoing for the next four weeks Uh, ben and i will be back again next thursday with more updates on how that hackathon is going maybe ideas coming out of that hackathon that are particularly interesting and do support ben's understanding that this will be as simple as possible and hopefully not introduce too much complexity to the ethereum network So if you have any questions that you would like answered on our podcast, anything you'd like to see us talk more about, please do connect with each of us, Ben and I, on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. We'd love to hear from you. We always enjoy the feedback that we're getting so far from you guys.
1: And you can subscribe to our newsletters. I write an update every other week on Ethereum 2 development, which you can find at eth2.news, or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. And you can subscribe to Christine's weekly newsletter called Valid Points by going to Coindesk.com. See you next week for mapping out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Bye.
0: Bye. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk a live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk and much more. Get an up close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. CoinDesk reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.